Thanks for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. My name is Brad, and I'm the lead campus pastor and primary preaching voice here at Cornerstone Church Airdrie. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of Scripture is still speaking to His kids today. So if it's me who's speaking to you or someone else on this recording, as you listen, we pray that you would know God, know His hope, know His purpose, and know His power. Enjoy the message. Touch you is the Lord. The pressure that I felt on me don't feel it anymore. You sent me healing from above. There's nothing realer than your love. But if you'd like to turn, you can turn either to Matthew chapter 22, Luke chapter 10, or both, depending on what you want to do. The, the context for what we're going to talk about this morning when it comes to Jesus is, is we're, we're through our Encountering Jesus series, but I want to take a look at, at a passage where Jesus talks about something incredibly important for us to understand, because Jesus will say that, that everything that we do, good, bad, or, or whatever, that, that how we handle this kind of thing is, is really the fulfillment of everything that God wants for us. And so what's taking place at this time and in this moment is that Jesus is, is a problem. Jesus is problematic for, for the re religious establishment, the religious leaders, and the people. And, and so Jesus is, is causing trouble, not because he's doing anything, but just by existing and, and by preaching the gospel message that he is preaching. And, and he's becoming wildly popular with people. People are hearing his teaching, hearing his, his philosophy, his understanding of the world and how we're supposed to fit into it. And people are buying into it, which is causing tension and causing problems for the people as, or for the religious establishment at the time. And so what, one of the things that they try to do is they try to turn the people against Jesus. And, and in, in, in Matthew chapter 22, you see that all of these different interactions as people try to turn Jesus or try to turn the people against Jesus. First, they ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. Whether, whether they should do that, whether they should pay taxes to this ruling oppressive government. And, 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 or, or should they keep the money for themselves? That, that either, no matter how he answers this, either he's going to enrage the Romans or he's going to enrage the, the people. That the, how do you answer that question? But, but Jesus passes the test. He passes the test. And, and, and then they ask him this totally insane question. They come to him and they say to him, this woman was married to this one brother, but then the brother died. And then she married the other brother, and that brother died. And then she married another brother, and that brother died. Then she married another brother, and that brother died. Then she married another brother, and that brother died. When she goes to heaven, which brother is she going to be married to? It's, it's, you know, you, you, you get the sense that, that they're getting close to the kind of questions that are like, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? That, that they're just asking them all of these different questions. But then that the one religious leader comes up with a question where he thinks, this is one I can trick him with. This is one that I can do something to him that will cause him to, to, to stumble and fall. It says that he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, what in your opinion is the most important law? Of all of the things, now I don't know how that worked. Um, with this question, what is the most important law? 
What, what is the most important law in, in, in the Old Testament, in, in our Torah, in all of these things? There were 612 laws. Now, now, this kind of thing was actually a debated topic for the time, a debated topic for the day. Many people believe that it was the law of circumcision that was the most important because it allowed for, for the people to be different. It was a demonstrable difference between the people. Other people believed it was the Sabbath because God said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It could have been the, the Sabbath. It could have been the, the law of circumcision. Others believed it was the law of all of the sacrifices that would need to be made, that, that all of these things were, were all of the, these important laws that needed to happen. And the hope was that no matter how Jesus answered this question, whichever law he picked, they would be able to pounce on all of the ones that he didn't pick. That whatever he said, there would be a segment of people that would disagree with him. That this other 612 laws, by default, if Jesus picks one, the other 612 are not as important. So, so they asked Jesus this question, waiting for him to stumble and fall. But Jesus gives them an answer to this question. He picks not one, but two commandments. And he tells the people, first Jesus will say, is, is this cutting out really bad? No? Um, first, Jesus will say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And then Jesus will add to this, saying, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is how Jesus answers this question. And then just to clarify for everybody who's around him, Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Everything that we do, everything that we believe, all of the commandments that God has given you hangs on these two things. If you can love God and love people. Now, this, this was, you know, it was an attempt by the Pharisees to do something negative, to try and trap Jesus. But what is a miraculous thing that, that we can see that the power of God to turn a negative into a positive is that when this, when we look at, at Jesus' answer to this, the thing that's really remarkable about being able to read this response is that what we're reading is the words of God himself. And so, so what, what's really remarkable is, is that even in this attempt by the Pharisees to trap Jesus and to cause this problem, we have this moment where God himself speaks to his people where God himself speaks to us and says, of all the things in my rules, in all of the commandments I've given you, what is at the most important core of my heart, of God's heart towards us, is that we love God and that we love people. We read this response from God himself, that the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second commandment, which is just like the first one, is that we love people. We place a high importance on loving God, but to love people to God is just like loving God. That it's not, there's not a distance between them. It's not, well, first place is this, and a very distant second is that. Is he says the first and greatest commandment is love God, and the second one, which is just like it, is for us to love people. To love other people is just as crucial to being a Christian as it is to love God. Other people, on the other hand, sometimes it's really hard to love other people. They're harder to love. It's a diff more difficult proposition. 
mission to love our neighbor as ourselves. People can be mean, aggressive, angry, intolerant, closed-minded, bigoted, offensive, hot-tempered jerks. And that's just the people you like. But for most of us, we'll go through life with probably a small collection of people around us that we actually really like. Family, well, some of them we like anyways, will, will be around us, and a few close friends. We'll be surrounded by a larger group that we'd call colleagues, acquaintances, and, and then there's everybody else. A great big world filled with every kind of person you can imagine. Eight billion or so. And we're called to love every one of them, every single one. And so for the purpose of this message and, and for next week, I want to divide up the entire world into two groups. The, the people here, the people with us, the, the church. We're going to talk about the church, and then we're going to talk about everybody else. Now, actually, today we're going to do it in the other order. Today we're going to talk about everybody else, and then tomorrow we're going to talk about, or tomorrow next week, we're going to talk about what it means to love everyone in the church. Today I want to talk about how we love everyone else, those who are not a part of the church, but very much still our neighbors. And Jesus highlighted this idea that these people who are, who are around us, that are, that are not a part of our church, are still our neighbors. When he tells a story found in Luke chapter 10 about a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Verse 30 of Luke 10 says, In reply to the, to the question, Who is my neighbor? Jesus said, A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going on the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him and passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have had. While these three, or which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. It's a story that many of us know, the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, there's a couple things, though, that I want to note about what it means to love your neighbor in the context of this story. The story starts out with a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This was a stretch of road that, that would be known to the people. When, when, he, when Jesus said he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, people would have understood the context of that. They would have understood that road. They would have understood that journey. And a couple things made it this way. Um, first, it was a very tough road to travel. It was about a 29-kilometer trip for perspective. That's about the same distance as from here to Iracana. But people were used to walking long distances back then. But what really made the, this journey difficult was the steep elevation drop. Jerusalem sits about 2,500 feet above sea level, where Jericho is about 750 feet below sea level. So it's a, it's a dramatic, in 30 kilometers, you are going down a dramatically deep slope, the, essentially the entire way, which made the journey very windy. It made the journey, you're doing lots of switchbacks back and forth. It wasn't a direct road and a direct path. It was an exhaustingly long, difficult journey. And what that informed then, what that made possible then, was that this journey a, a prime place for robbers and violence. 
you, you would get tired. You would get weary. You would get worn out. You would get taken out by this journey. And so then people would wait to come and get you because they knew you were tired and worn out. They would be able to steal from you and threaten you and potentially kill, kill you. It, it was a stretch of travel known to people as a dangerous place to go. It reminds me of, of several years ago now, um, we had to, our, our, my, Yvonne and I and, and Matt and Tracy had the opportunity to go to Anaheim for a, a international pastors convention. And, and while we were there, we had a big break one day and we decided to go do some sightseeing. And so we went on a big, a big trip all around Los Angeles. We were in Anaheim, went up north to Angeles Temple, the first four-square church that was ever in existence, and so got to see that, and drove all the way over through Hollywood, all the way to Santa Monica, and went to a really amazing restaurant and had the best ceviche in my life. It's, we needed to get back to Anaheim. We had a GPS with us back in the day before your, your phone was your GPS, and then the phone had, or the GPS had a function to, to get you there the fastest regardless of the road. So we punched into the GPS. We needed to get back to our hotel. And so it was taking us on all of these side streets and all of these different directions and all of these different different ways. And you jump on this road for like 200 meters then jump off and on all of these different things. And as we're driving, started to notice that that some of the street names and, the, you know, the, the buildings were starting to look a little different. And some of the street names were starting to look a little different. Some may be familiar with like Florence and Normandy. Um, it was right at the heart of the LA riots. That's where that began. Or, or Crenshaw Boulevard. And as we're driving along, suddenly we pass through this neighborhood and there's this big sign that says, Welcome to Compton. And so we're, we're, we're driving along on this road. And, and now Compton is, is a neighborhood in, in South Central Los Angeles that's, that's famous for gang violence and for being a rough neighborhood and, and all of that. And as, as we're driving along, as, as we're driving down the street, a, a car pulls out and kind of just stops in the middle of an intersection. And so, well, that's odd. And I turn to go around that. And as we're driving a little further ahead of us, another car pulls out in front and stops in the middle of that intersection. And, and I, I've seen enough TV to know, I think we're about to get carjacked. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I know that Pastor Matt and I are pretty intimidating fellows. You know, that, that if somebody was to, they may think twice when they saw us. But in my head, I'm thinking, you know, they can only rob us once. Give them the keys, give them the car, give them the phone, whatever. They can only, once, once they've taken it, they've taken it. Um, now, as, as we've progressed and as I prayed and, and all of these kind of, the, the other car that was in front of us just left. And so we were able to get on the freeway and get out of there. But what, what the takeaway from, from this would be is had things gone terribly wrong, and had we had things gone the way that we feared that they could have gone, one of the questions that people may have asked of us is, why on earth were you there? Like, what, what, what would have made you think that that was a good idea for, for the four of you in your rented new vehicle to, to drive through one of these neighborhoods? And why were you there? Don't, don't you know the reputation that this place has? What on earth were you doing in Compton? Now, when Jesus told the story of going from Jericho to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Jericho, this was the kind of situation he was painting. A situation where people would say, why on earth are you there? Why on earth was this person doing this journey by themselves like this? He was traveling somewhere that he should not have been in a way that he should not have been doing it. But, but when the Samaritan finds the man, he doesn't 
talk to him about that. He doesn't highlight his circumstance for him. He doesn't feel compelled to make sure that the man knew you're in a place you shouldn't be. He didn't make a point of making sure that he knew he was in the wrong for walking down such a dangerous path on his own. He just saw a man who needed to be loved and to show him compassion. Now, Obviously, another large component of the story, probably the largest, is the fact that the good person, the hero of the story, was a Samaritan. If, if you've heard people speak about this story or, or someone talk about Samaritans in the Bible, what you probably may remember is that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other. Specifically, the Jews did not like the Samaritans. In, in fact, the reality was they were viewed as not even people. Like, like the, 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 the cultural understanding of the Samaritans was that they, their, their iniquity, their sin, their culture was so flawed and so broken that they weren't even categorized as people. You could kill them, you could do, and, and it wasn't the same as if you had killed an actual person. Their lives literally carried no value. The roots of the intense hatred for the Samaritan people stretched all the way back to, to when the Jews had been taken in the Assyrian captivity. And when Assyria captured a land, one of the things that they would do is they would make people move around. They, they would uproot you and move you to somewhere else to, to both disorient you and make you uncomfortable and, and also to remind you that you're in captivity. And that's, that's what happened to, to Israel when they were taken into captivity is they were forced to go somewhere else and other people were brought in to to where they were. And when, when they were released from their captivity, they moved back home. There were these other displaced people who were there. And when the people of Israel were brought back, they began to worship and live life with these displaced people. And it caused their worship of God and who they worship to change. And, and which ultimately then led to what, what the Jewish people would see as, as the true Jewish people, the non-Samaritans, to, to, to look down on these other people and to see them as not pure Jews, not, not pure people. And so when Jesus spoke of a priest and a Levite merely passing by and a Samaritan doing good things inside of this story, it was a, a method of getting people's attention. When Jesus said it was the Samaritan that was good, not the people of God, but rather the people that God's people really struggled with, that they're the good guys in this story, Jesus was saying that yes, even them, the hard answer, the hard demographic, whoever you think, wherever in your mind it goes where you would say, but he can't mean them, by selecting, by, by saying it was a Samaritan, Jesus was saying, yes, especially them especially the people you struggle with the most, wherever our minds would go to of, of surely he couldn't have been talking about, that was specifically who Jesus had chosen to talk about. The point of the story was to get the listeners to recognize that everyone, even someone that doesn't even qualify as a person, they are your neighbors. The point was to say to the expert of the law, the person who had come to question him, that asked Jesus the question of who is my neighbor, that everyone, even Samaritans, are your neighbor. And, and you can see the struggle in this for the, for the guy who, do, who was doing the questions. At the end of the story, Jesus asks the man, which of these guys do you see as being your neighbor? Who, who, or, who, who, who was the neighbor? 
And the man reluctantly says the Samaritan. Except that he doesn't. The man can't bring himself to identify the Samaritan the same way that Jesus did. He can only respond with the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan that was the neighbor. He couldn't even bring himself to say that. And that's who God is calling us to love. That's who God is saying our love is, or say, that's who God is saying our love is for, and it is important as our love for God. That who our love needs to be for, that is as important as our love for God, is the people in our lives that we would look down on the most. The people in our lives that we would have the deepest struggle with. And we need to love like this, because for all of us who have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, this is how we are loved. Paul will write in Romans chapter 5, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were uh, powerless, unrighteous. We were not good. We were sinners, undeserving, hopeless sinners. Other places in scripture will say that we were God's enemies. In Romans chapter 5 and James 4, it'll tell us this. In Colossians 1, it'll say that we were alienated from God. We were stuck someplace we should not have been. Our, our story was that we shouldn't have been where we were. We were in a place that, that we were not supposed to be, and we were somebody that deserved nothing other than death. And yet in the middle of this state, in the middle of being that person, God showed us the greatest love possible. He died for us sinners. We are called to love everyone. If Jesus specifically tells the Jewish people to love your neighbor as yourself and then goes on to tell the people that the Samaritans are their neighbors, the implication for us is simple. Whatever your bias, whatever your prejudices, whatever moral objections you may have to someone, their lifestyle, their choice, the place they find themselves where you meet them, you are called to love them. When the world comes into our lives, into our church, what the world needs to know is love. When we go out into the world, what the world needs to know is love. We are to love our neighbors. We're to love our homeless neighbors, our Muslim neighbors, our black neighbors, our white neighbors, our gay neighbors, our Jewish neighbors, our Christian neighbors, our atheist neighbors, our racist neighbors, our addicted neighbors, our conservative neighbors, our liberal neighbors. We are called to love our neighbors. And whatever you may look and go, yeah, but what about when Jesus said the, the Samaritan was the neighbor, whatever our what about was, it was taken care of. The point of the story of the Good Samaritan is twofold for us today. First, we need to love people where we find them, not make the move to find love, not shame them before they find love. But just like the Samaritan, the Levite, and the priest, who also were not so smartly traveling that road alone recognize that we were all in the same boat. We were all in the same place. 
But like the man in the bad place, in our wretched distress, amazing grace came and rescued us. And second, everyone is our neighbor. Everyone is worthy of love. And as a Christian, everyone is deserving of our love. We're called to love our neighbor. For the Jews, that included the Samaritans. And for us, that includes whoever we struggle with. After all, while we were yet sinners, powerless, enemies of God, estranged from God, as far from him as we could get, God demonstrated the greatest love for you and for me. Christ died for us. I get lost inside this Thanks again for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Cornerstone Church, there are a couple places you can go. First is our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com, and select the Airdrie campus. And some of the best ways to connect with us is through our social media channels. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstoneairdrie. Follow us on Twitter at csairdrie. And on Instagram at cornerstoneairdrie. If you'd like to connect with the pastoral team at Cornerstone, you can do that again through our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com. Click on the Airdrie campus, then click on the About Us on the main menu, and then one last click on Our Campus Pastors. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get new messages delivered directly to you. We are so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Cornerstone Church Airdrie, we are a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. We follow Jesus together as family we go. My heart responds with holy, holy. Oh, you never cease to amaze me. And it's only just the start. Oh, it's only just the start. You keep drawing me. You keep drawing me closer to
Closer to your heart. 